0: Well, what if I told you that I had a secret recipe for your health and your happiness? You want to be healthier, you want to be happier, right? Well, I have a secret recipe for you being healthier and you being happier. You can have a stronger immune system. You can lower your blood pressure. You can be happier and experience less depression You can experience, there's typically with this, less drug and alcohol abuse. Kids who abide by this recipe have a higher probability of graduating high school. And also lower incidences of drug abuse and alcohol abuse. You can even add seven years to your life expectancy. All by attending church at least once a week. There's scientific research behind it. And actually, there's scientific research that shows if you attend any place of of worship at least once a week, all of these benefits can be yours. Well, I know that's not why you attend church regularly. But we would do well to consider for ourselves, why do I have the faith which I have? Why do I trust God? Why do I fear God? Why do I worship God? Is it because of some benefit that I get from it? Is it because I have safety and security from the Lord? Is it because of the good gifts that He has given me? Do you worship God because of something you get out of it, or do you worship God simply because He is God and He is worthy of your worship? In our passage, we see Job experiences a terrible test, terrible suffering, and his testing proves a couple of things. One, it proves the genuineness of his own faith. Secondly, it proves the worthiness of God. He clung to his integrity. He clung to his faith in God despite losing everything that was dear to him. He feared God. He worshiped God not because of the things he had, but simply because God was worthy in and of himself of worship. This is a very mysterious and difficult book for us to be pursuing together. I was hesitant to do so because of my own inadequacies, and yet I was encouraged by others. Just just plunge right in. And we'll walk through this book of Job together and see what the Lord has for us. And in these first two chapters, we see Job's tremendous suffering. We are introduced to Job and his wealth. And then we, are, we get to peer in to something Job had no idea about. No idea why he was suffering. No idea why he, all these bad things were happening, happening to him. We get to, to a heavenly view. We get a view of God's dealings and Satan's dealings behind the scenes with the person of Job. As we walk through these two chapters, we will kind of hang our hats on these three points, these three themes. One, Job's wealth, verses 1 through 5. And then we'll see the bulk of the, uh, the rest of chapters 1 and 2 have to do with Satan's wager. This, this challenge that Satan brings against Job. We'll see that in part 1, the rest of chapter 1, and then we'll see that in his part, wager part 2, all of chapter 2. Consider first Job's wealth. We're introduced to this man of Job, this man from the land of Uz. He's not an Israelite. We we see nothing having to do with uh, Israel or the people of God. There's this man named Job of the land of Uz. And yet, he fears God. We're introduced to Job's wealth. He is rich in family. He's rich in possessions. And he is rich in character. He has seven sons and three daughters. These numbers, of course, are are related symbolically to to perfection and fullness. He has this huge family, and he enjoys their company. He's rich in possessions. He has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. Imagine the mass of animals. Imagine being out on a car lot, seeing hundreds and hundreds of cars, and now all of a sudden they're animals, they're sheep, and they're camels, and they're oxen, just tons and tons of animals. And with that, you would expect them also to have many, many servants taking care of these animals, cleaning them, caring for them, disposing of their waste. I mean, this is a huge operation. As I was just meditating, reflecting on this, I was like, what would you do with 3,000 camels? 3,000 camels. I mean, this Job is wealthy. He is the Bill Gates of this time period, maybe even more than that. He is described as the greatest of all the people of the East. This is a wealthy man. But not only is he greatest in terms of his possessions, he is rich in character. He is described as a man that is blameless and upright. Blameless. Morally perfect. Now we know with our systematic theology, no man in and of himself except the Lord Jesus Christ is without sin. And yet the emphasis here is on his righteousness. This is a man which stands head and shoulders above other men and women in his righteousness. He is blameless. And he is righteous. That word speaks of him being uh, morally straight, We're not crooked. He is, he is perfect. He is straight. He is one who fears God and turns away from evil. He, he fears God. He worships Him. He has a, a reverence for God. He knows that God is the Almighty of heaven and earth, and He will worship Him as Lord. And His love for God makes Him turn away from evil at every turn. As you read through the book of Job, You see some of this righteousness come out, his taking in of the poor, of the needy, of orphans, caring for others. We also see his righteousness in what he would do for his children. He would make sacrifices for them. When the days of their feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. He is a man of righteousness, blameless and upright. And we see the author says this, but we also see that God himself affirms that this is who Job is. We see this in verse 8. When God is speaking to Satan, he says, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on all the earth? Not only is he the greatest of the people of the East, there's no one like him in all the earth. Why? He's blameless and upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. Also in chapter 2, verse 3, again speaking to Satan. He, there is none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil repeated over and over again, even on the lips of God. Implicit in this, implicit in God's affirmation of Job, I think is his delight in his servant Job. He delights in his righteous servant. Like a father delights over his children when he sees them doing well. When my kids play sports, baseball or soccer, their dad delights over them, rejoices in him Isaiah hitting a good hit or Jana kicking the soccer ball well, playing well. But even more than delight in those sorts of things is when a father sees his son or daughter. Show care to one who is weak. Protect one who is weak. Show love to one who is rejected by others. Right? That brings delight to a father's heart when he sees his children walking in the way of the Lord with character which is upright and righteous. And in the same way, when our Heavenly Father God looks down upon His children, He delights in our righteousness. Now with Job, again, we would say that this is not in, in Job in himself. Rather, it has been a grace of God given to Job, his servant. And we're reminded of another servant of the Lord, which the Scripture speaks. In Isaiah chapter 49, the Scripture speaks of the the servant of the Lord who will come. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And in chapter 49, verse 5 and following, And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. And that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing? It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, prophesied. By Isaiah long ago, his servant, the servant of the Lord in whom God delights. He is the one ultimately in whom God delights for he is perfectly blameless and righteous without spot, without blemish. Every day of Jesus's life, he lived perfectly for the glory of God and the heavenly father looked down upon him and it was his great delight. Jesus also is pictured by Job in that he was a sort of priest as well. Job was a sort of priest, and it points to Christ who is our great high priest, who made sacrifices for his people, who made sacrifices for the children of God. And yet his sacrifice was of infinite value, for he was, as we've already sung, the Lamb of God in my place. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. Of the world. He laid down his own life for the sake of his people. He was a better and truer mediator than Job was for his children. And in Jesus' offering of his perfect life and in his sacrificial death, the Lord looked upon that with great delight. And it's because of Jesus' active obedience, in his life, and his passive obedience, in his sacrificial death, imputed to those who come to him in faith. This is why, brothers and sisters, God looks upon you with delight. Because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which has been counted for you. Rejoice in this, brothers and sisters. Though you sin frequently, though you sin day after day, though you commit the same sin that you committed 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Through your faith in Jesus Christ, because of His grace for you, God looks upon you and He delights in the righteousness that He sees because of Jesus Christ. And not only that, He delights as He is working in you by His grace to to work out your salvation. Fathers and mothers, as you graciously and by the grace of God show patience with your children, God delights in that work. Children, as you in faith in Jesus Christ, if you are believers, as you relate to your brothers and sisters in kindness and in sharing and in caring for them, God looks upon those works and delights in them. Husbands and wives, as you relate to one another, as you forgive one another, as you forbear with one another, as you work giving glory to God. He delights in those works. Isn't this amazing? He is working in us by His grace and it all brings glory back to Him as He delights in His children. We see Job's wealth in his riches, in family, possessions, and his character, and we see implicitly God delighting in His servant. But then we see a twist in the story. Here comes the problem. Satan's Wager, part 1 in verses 6 through 22. We see this uh, kind of a courtroom scene where all the sons of God come in before God. These angels, these heavenly beings come in before God and Satan comes along among them. The Lord speaks to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answers, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And perhaps we should see this implicit in Satan's word, this idea of seeking to cause destruction, seeking to cause chaos. He's, he's wandering around the earth seeking destruction. In verse 8, God speaks back to him, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? A word considered could possibly, it almost sounds like God's bragging on Job, and there is this, this idea implicit of delight in Job, and yet we could also consider these words to, to be something like, have you been setting your mind on Job, this righteous one of mine? In your, in your attempts to destroy and cause chaos and destruction, have you been setting your mind on Job? There's none like him on all the earth. And Satan responds, Does he fear God for nothing? You've given him everything that he needs. You've protected him. You've cared for him. You've caused him great success. Why wouldn't he fear you with all that you've blessed him with? He accuses Job of really just having a selfish sort of faith. You fear God because of what he's given you. But if you take it all away, then he will curse you to your, your face. He asks the question in verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? And then, according to Satan, here's why Job fears God. You've put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Here's the wager. Stretch out your hand and touch all he has and he will curse you to your face. And mysteriously, the Lord says, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, waiting for an opportune time to strike all that Job had from his presence. And Job loses everything. All the oxen, all the donkeys that he had, all the sheep, the servants... The camels, more servants, and then worst of all, his own children are destroyed. This is, if you imagine a heavyweight boxing match, this is a jab, 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 uppercut, and he is knocked flat on the mat. We, perhaps most of us, maybe all of us, cannot begin to imagine the desperation he must felt here. Having it all, and then losing it all. And what is Job's response? Then Job arose, verse 20, tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. This is a magnificent grace of God. And he speaks, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job says, I came into the world with nothing, and that's, I'm content with leaving the world with nothing. Most magnificently, he worships, the Lord, even despite his terrible suffering. Now, as we consider this wager, the suffering of Job and his response, I want us to consider a few implications to this. One is, we must remember in the midst of our suffering that Satan's power is limited. Satan ultimately is on a leash when it comes to what he can do to the people of God. We know this because of what Job says. We know this because of the story, but then also because of what Job says. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Ultimately, Satan is asking the Lord permission to do anything to Job. And in verse 22, we read In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In other words, the author's telling us what Job said about the Lord giving and the Lord taking away is, is right, it's true. See, we might read this and we say, well, Satan did it. The Lord didn't do it. Satan did these things, yes. But even Satan's work is under the sovereign hand of the Lord God Almighty. Satan's power is limited in his ability to afflict you. And God is sovereign even over Satan. And it's no contest. It's not like there are these two rivals battling it out and they're almost equals. No, Satan is Nothing compared to God Almighty. Also, consider that God's delight in His servants does not preclude suffering. That God delights in Job, that God delights in His servant, does not mean they will not experience difficult, even terrible suffering. We know this from Job and we know this from the Lord Jesus Christ. God delighted in Jesus perfectly because of his perfect righteousness and yet Jesus endured the worst suffering any human could possibly face when he suffered under the wrath of God for sinners. God's delight in you, brothers and sisters, does not preclude suffering. But finally, consider this pairing of mourning and worship. This pairing of sorrow and worship. We typically associate worship with only happiness or rejoicing, right? When we worship God, we're rejoicing in song, we're singing, we're praising His name. And yet, here Job demonstrates for us that there are other pairings with worship. And one of them is great sorrow and mourning with worship. He tears His robe, a sign of great desperation and grief, He shaves his head and falls on the ground and bows down before the Lord in worship. What does that mean for our worship in the midst of suffering? No doubt he prayed to the Lord. At the heart of worshiping God is ascribing to God the worthiness which he's due. Ascribing to God worth, ascribing to Him His greatness, His power, His goodness. Job was affirming all these things despite his great suffering. Satan hasn't won the wager yet. Job held fast to his integrity. He worshipped the Lord even though he lost everything. But Satan's not done yet. We see that in chapter 2, the second part of his wager. This court scene is repeated. These sons of God come to present themselves before Yahweh the Lord, and Satan also comes among him to present himself to the Lord. The Lord asks where you have come from. Satan responds in the same way, to and fro on the earth, up and down on it. The Lord speaks again to Satan about the person of Job. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in all the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then this line is added, he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Again, pointing to the sovereignty of God in what Job is suffering. And we, we know Unlike Job, we know why Job is suffering. Job is, st- is still mysterious for Job, just like it is for you and your suffering. Just like it is for you and the, the challenges you face. We are left in the dark concerning the why of our suffering. As Job is here, we get insight that Job doesn't have. God Himself says it was He is destroyed without reason. In other words, He is not deserving of this suffering because of His sin. But Satan answers the Lord and says, Skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone in his flesh, and he will curse you to his face. Satan is accusing Job once again by saying that he's selfish in his faith. Yes, he's lost all of his livestock. He's lost all of his possessions. He's lost even his family. But Job is so selfish that he worships you because he's still thankful he just has his, his own body. He values himself more than all of these other things. He accuses Job once again and says he still will curse you to your face if you stick out, stretch out your hand against him. And the Lord, again, gives him permission, only says spare his life. Job is struck with loathsome sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet and he takes pottery and scrapes himself while he sits in his misery and in the ashes. A temptation comes from his wife. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? In other words, Job is still holding fast to his integrity. He's still clinging to faith in God despite what he has suffered And she encourages him, curse God and die. Just be done with it. She's being used as a pawn of Satan to try to tempt Job to curse his God. And yet again, by the grace of God, Job responds rightly. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak, he says a rebuke to his wife. And then these words, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil or calamity, disaster? Should we receive, should we be happy to receive all the good things that God has for us and not receive difficulties or trials or sufferings? The answer for Job is yes, we should. It is a a humble submission to the sovereignty and goodness of God even when you don't understand it. Yes, I. Job says, I will receive good, but also I will receive disaster. The implication is God gives both in his sovereignty. He ordains that both are a part of his world. And the proper response that we see some from Job is submission, uh, submission and patience. And the author again tells us, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Mysterious, amazing, unbelievable. Of course, some implications here, applications. We will be tempted in our sufferings. Satan will use not only the sufferings, but people around us perhaps or other situations to draw us away from fearing God. To cause us, if possible, the elect to curse the God who saved us. And yet, He will be with us. In his grace as well. Satan is proved wrong. You're wrong, Satan. You took away everything that Job had. His family, his wealth, even his health. And yet he still trusted in you. Satan is proved wrong and we see him explicitly no longer. We will see him perhaps in some of the words which are spoken by his three friends. But Satan has been proved wrong and he leaves the scene. So the book is over, right? That's the end of the story. The wager has been made by Satan. Job proves the genuineness of his faith and the worthiness of God. Well, no, it's not over yet. This sets the stage for the book of Job in which Job's friends, representing the greatest wisdom throughout the region, would try to figure this out. Why is Job suffering like this? What is the reason behind it? And we will explore that together through the rest of this series. But I want to point out this last last aspect of Satan being proved wrong on his question, does Job fear God for nothing? And in a sense, the answer is yes. Job fears God for nothing because God is God. When you travel to when you travel to the mountains and you stand out on the edge of a cliff and you gaze out across the horizon and you see a huge mountain you stand in awe. And why do you stand in awe at this vision before you? Because it is a mountain. There is an otherness about it. It is something completely other than than your own personal experience. It is huge. It is magnificent. You are in awe simply because of what it is. And when you come to understand who the God of heaven and earth is, when you are able to perceive Him with your mind's eye, you are unable to do anything but to stand in awe and worship Him simply because He is God. And I want to say that this is a companion truth to what is sometimes called Christian hedonism. That's the idea that we, we uh, as John Piper says we are most, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. This idea of finding our ultimate joy and satisfaction in God and that brings Him glory more than anything else when we have satisfaction in Him. So I think this offers us a little nuance to that, not opposition to that idea, but a little nuance to it in, in seeing that God is to be worshiped and feared simply because he is God. For no other reason. Just he is God. He is to be worshiped and adored because of who he is. And then because of God's graciousness and goodness, he throws in the enjoyment with it. He causes us to see and delight in who He is. And we rejoice. We not only worship Him simply because He is God, but we enjoy who He is for us in His goodness and grace in Jesus Christ. I want to conclude by pointing out an an interesting twist through these first two chapters in the use of a particular word. You see in verse 5, When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to their number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and blessed God in their hearts. That's what the the text actually reads. Also in verse 11. The text says, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will bless you to your face. Also verse 21. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 5 as well. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will bless you to your face. And finally, chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Bless God and die. What is going on here? Well, some have suggested that this is a a euphemism for cursing God, which in the context, it makes total sense. That is true. In, In all of those instances, except for the one where Job blesses the Lord, the name of the Lord, it makes sense to understand it as curse some have also suggested and i think this is on the right track as well that the author himself is so careful that he doesn't want to he doesn't want to curse god even in the writing of this story he wants to bless god and in the hebrew bible job comes after the book of psalm as we look at psalms 147, 148, 149, 150. We hear this echo Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you moon and stars. Praise the Lord, you heavens. Pla- praise the Lord, all you hosts. And here, I think the author is telling us the same thing. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Bless the name of the Lord. In the morning and in, in the evening, bless the name of the Lord. In the light and in the dark, Bless the name of the Lord. When the sun is shining and when the clouds are are coming overhead, bless the name of the Lord. When you're laughing or when you're crying, bless the name of the Lord in pleasure or in pain. Bless the name of the Lord. Whether everything's going right with the world or everything is going wrong with the world, bless the name of the Lord, ye saints, for he is worthy of your worship. Let us pray together.